Stu Does America. StuDoesMerch.com. Yes, the only website you need to know today. Get your Christmas presents there. Use the code Stu20 for 20% off of everything in the store. Help us win the evil merch war. It's a ground war. Lots of people have died. We need to win. If you're watching on YouTube, like this video right now, follow the channel, click the bell, do all the things. James Lindsay is gonna be here today with the latest on the left's corruption of our kids and how it's happening. Joe Biden says the quiet part out loud when asked about the southern border, but we start by doing the fall of Georgia. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest about it. Georgia is not a red state. It is a purple state. This is a very close election in Georgia. We've had several in a row. And this is the type of thing where we should all kind of, I think, get used to the fact that Florida's not really a purple state anymore. Georgia now is. This is not a fluke, and it seems like to be part of the real picture we're going to be facing for a long time. Raphael Warnock won in Georgia. He won the runoff defeating challenger Herschel Walker. You know, of course, a first-time candidate. And the race was very close. Raphael Warnock, 51.4% of the vote. Herschel Walker, 48.6%. That is about 100,000 votes in total across the entire state. Uh, uh, Walker then went on to concede. He said, we put on put up one heck of a fight. Walker concedes Senate runoff to Warnock. Uh, Is this headline right, though? Because I was told credibly that uh, Herschel Walker was going to deny the election results and start a coup or something. I don't know. Didn't seem to happen. Just conceded. All these people seem to pretty much concede. They all just said, yeah, yeah, we lost. It sucked, but we lost. Generally speaking, that's been kind of the story across the country. And the media told everybody that would not be the case across the country. Yet another lie. Uh, President Biden just called Senator Warnock to congratulate him on his win tonight. Georgia voters stood up for our democracy, rejected ultra magaism whatever the hell that is, and most importantly, sent a good man back to the Senate. Uh, he hears to six more years. Now, of course, he's not particularly a good man, but that's a whole different story. What does all this mean? Look, we are in a period where we need to understand that, unfortunately, this is a purple state and these elections are not always going to be easy. It's important to understand what we're learning from these elections. And we should also take things in perspective. What did the left really accomplish here? Can we get into this for a second? Because they are acting as if they won the Super Bowl. I keep thinking of the meme that goes around from time to time with the guy who is wearing the medal. He's just won some big race or something and he's sitting there. He's got the wet medal. He's cheering. He put, you know, he bites the medal, you know, the old uh, checking, make sure it's real. He grabs the hot woman next to him, bends her back, put hand on her butt, starts making out with her. And then you zoom back out and he's in third place. It kind of seems like what the Democrats are doing here. Let's be clear. Right now, currently, in this environment where we are today, the Democrats have full control of the House, Senate, and presidency. Come January, when all this transition happens, they will not have that anymore. Is that a win? Yeah, I know maybe they outperformed their expectations of the last couple of weeks when we were kind of hoping. And, you know, that a little spark of hope and wish became uh, toward the, the, the sort of uh, uh, the outcome of a red wave that we all super duper wanted that didn't happen but still they lost the house nancy pelosi is no longer in leadership uh the democrats what did they do they expanded in one seat in the senate i mean look it's better than losing seats sure but is this some huge triumph 
Is this something that they run around like they've won the Super Bowl, like they just passed for 500 yards in the Super Bowl and, and won? This is not that. If, if anything, this is more similar to the Monday night football game where Tom Brady was down 16-3 to to the Saints and didn't look so good. And then he came back and he threw a couple touchdowns and they won 17-16 to to improve to 500 on the season. Like that, I mean, look, you'd rather have that than the other way around. Except in that case, they actually won. In, in the case of the Democrats, they actually went the wrong way. They lost power in this election. It wasn't as good an outcome as Republicans uh, wanted. But let's be honest about it. It wasn't a great outcome for Democrats either. This isn't the worst thing in the world. And, you know, Van Jones, who, look, you don't come to this network to get uh, praise of Van Jones' opinions. Uh, we're not exactly the, the hub of Van Jones' support here <laughs> Uh, Blaze TV. But what I will say is, while I'm not a fan at all of Van Jones being anywhere near the White House, he's not a bad analyst. I mean, he's actually one of the better people, I think, on the left when it comes to being interesting and saying things that I think are honest. He's getting destroyed by the left today because he said this. I want you to listen to this and tell me which part is wrong. The, the good thing that is going on here, the danger for Democrats is you guys are now having to look under your own hood and you're asking tough questions. Right now, Democrats are not. Like we, if we win tonight, you got a lot of triumphalism on our side. But there's this counter scenario where you didn't have that abortion uh, decision come down. If Trump hadn't gotten in there and picked a bunch of people that couldn't win, we'd be the ones crying and we'd be trying to make our party better. So it, right now, uh, you guys are in a better position because you, you're being forced to rethink. We got to rethink as well. You know, it's, the audio is a little hard to understand, but if you didn't quite get the concept there, he's saying, Look, we're acting like we had this huge win, and it's great to win, of course. But, like, this isn't going to cause us to question anything that happened. The, the right might question it. They might pick different candidates next time. They might, uh, they might uh, emphasize different policies and, and come up with a different approach. Because they're sitting here saying, wow, this didn't go as well as we thought. We need to question what we were doing. On the other side, the left has been reinforced. I mean, think about this from the left. And this is... Bad for the country, but good for Republicans. The left is going to come out of this and say, you know what? I guess Joe Biden is okay. I guess we can run him in 2024. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for Republicans? The left is going to come out of this and say, you know, I, you know, I guess teaching CRT to kids might not be such a losing strategy. I guess we'd continue it. Hey, you know, that whole, uh, you know, uh, drag queen story hour support. I think we keep going with that. It seems like it's working. There's, a, there's an argument to be made that they lost the power. Conservatives, Republicans were able to get the House and say, OK, we can put up that wall. At least there's a wall there. And then the left might very well run the same playbook back here. Run Joe Biden again. And look, I was there for the Tea Party. We were right in the middle of the Tea Party revolution, and it was really exciting. That 2010 election was among one of my favorite political moments in the history of the country, certainly in my lifetime. We got a zillion seats, uh, Republicans took control of the House and the Senate, and it was great. And then in 2014, kind of the same thing, both midterm elections where Republicans and conservatives triumphed, incredible gains, big time wins. But sandwiched in between, or I guess the meat in that sandwich was 2012, a disappointing time where we didn't take the White House. And look, it's great to have the House and the Senate, but what can you do there? What you basically can do there is block. You can block things from happening. You can block the president from getting what they want. But what you can't do is pass things without the president. 
So maybe this works out really well. Maybe we'll learn some really important lessons here in 2022. And then in 2024, when the Senate map is much, much better for Republicans, when you have a chance to have go up against a really flawed candidate like uh, Joe Biden, maybe you win all three. Maybe you win the House. Maybe you win the Senate. Maybe you win the White House. And you can actually get some stuff done. Maybe this winds up being the best case scenario. I don't know. It's going to be a rough couple years from here on out. And I'm making lemon, uh, lemonade out of lemons a little bit here. But look, maybe this works out really, really well uh, this time. Um, let me um, also go on to the Georgia thing in particular, because I do think this is important to think about. You know, Herschel Walker, I think, as a guy, uh, I, I, I really like him. We've had him on the show before. Uh, I mean, he's a former Philadelphia Eagle, so, I mean, obviously he's a good person. Uh, although he's also a former Cowboy, so I don't know what to think about, about Herschel. But the, the, the larger point there is that he's a first-time candidate, and he came into a very competitive race in a difficult state, a purple state, and, you know, I think the idea was he's a big celebrity personality and he's very, very famous in Georgia. Georgia, by the way, the number one seed right now in college football. There's a lot to think of when it, when it comes to ties to that state. And there's reasons to believe that Herschel Walker would have performed well. But you put a guy who, in a very difficult position, frankly, he wanted this. I think he had really good moments in the campaign. And, you know, there are some candidates, I think, around the country that were real mistakes to run. I don't think Herschel Walker falls into that category. I think it's a little bit revisionist to say, okay, well, this guy was a terrible candidate. I think he would have won in the field whether he had the Trump uh, endorsement or not. He sort of, even Mitch McConnell uh, was kind of on board of clearing the field for Herschel Walker. There wasn't really a challenger there that they thought could win. But I do think that it's important for going forward for Republicans and conservatives to look at their field of candidates and pick the right tool for the job. You know, it's, uh, we've mentioned football a couple times here. Let me think of a good football team to come up with here in an analogy. Um, gosh, it's hard to, is there, are there any, I don't know, 11 and one teams in the NFL? Probably not. That's so rare. Oh wait, there is one, the Philadelphia Eagles. The Philadelphia Eagles are 11 and one and, and they were nine and one. And then they've won the last two games. And it's been interesting as an Eagles fan, of course I watch every single second. Against Green Bay, a team that defeated the Dallas Cowboys, by the way. Uh, they ran for 363 yards or something. It was like the most yards for the franchise since 1948. It was uh, the most rushing yards we've seen in a very long time in the NFL. They just absolutely dominated the line of scrimmage and ran the ball down their throat, play after play after play. Their next matchup, Tennessee Titans. Great rushing defense. Porous sort of on the, in the secondary and when it comes to passing defense. And so what did the Eagles do? Did they try to just run the same playbook out there? Did they try to just jam it down their throat and try to just, they could have tried that. They may have won doing that. But instead what they did is they had Jalen Hurts come out and throw for 380 yards. They threw the ball all over the field against the Titans. They decided to take the right approach for the battle they were facing that day. And while sometimes we can get into these little areas where we want to keep everything the way we want it, we want to run the same system because we love that system, we have to understand that there is a long-term and short-term approach here. If you're running in a, uh, a state that's purple and you're running in a state that has maybe McCain-type Republicans that keep winning there, maybe the right move is to run a more traditional conservative candidate in that race and try to win it. And long-term, you can try to uh, try to convince people that they need to move their opinions. And that's always something that we're working on here. And we do do this all the time at The Blaze. 
But running your ultra MAGAism candidate in, a, in you know, a state like, let's say, Pennsylvania is not really the right approach. You have to pick the right tool for the job. Pick the right game plan for the game that you're actually playing. It's really, really important, and it's a lesson that I think has to be learned for Republicans and conservatives going forward. You know, Susan Collins sucks, but she might be the best we can get in Maine. So maybe a deal with Susan Collins in Maine and line up really strong people in places like, I don't know, Utah, where, by the way, did I mention that Mitt Romney is up for re-election in two years? You want to talk about a smart place to focus, it's a place like that. Find the right candidate there. Find the right candidate to take out Joe Manchin in West Virginia. The right candidate in Ohio to make sure that they win. Look, J.D. Vance worked completely fine in Ohio. Dr. Oz, not so much in Pennsylvania. Make the right decision for the right game, the right tool for the right job, the right playbook for the right weekend. That's how you do this. And then over the long term, you work to convince people, to persuade people that the, the more pure policy is the right policy. That's how this works in a long-term and a short-term environment. Learn these lessons and go forward into 2024. Inflation has us thinking about different ways to cut back, whether it's driving less, it's dining out less, it's buying less from the grocery store. I mean, you hate doing all that. This is America. We're supposed to be buying more stuff. Um, that's not fun. That's why you got to use Upside. It's why I use Upside. I know that I, I got a new car, as you uh, may know. Uh, it took 14 months to show up, but that's America apparently today. So I've got this car, and I'm driving it around, and this is not an electric, not a economy car, not a, uh, not a, it's not a hybrid. No, no. It is, it basically take, if I want to drive from here to the gas station, I need a full tank of gas. So all I can do really is make it to the gas station and back. It's a lot. And so I put a ton of gas into this and I, I said to myself, you know what I need to do? I need to fire up upside every single time I'm at the gas station. Why? Because you can save. I save 35 cents a gallon on Upside, 35 cents a gallon. That's a massive difference. If you use the promo code now on the Upside app, use the promo code STU, you get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of 10 bucks or more. And you can claim an offer for wherever you're going. You just go in, check into the business. It's not just gas, by the way. It's restaurants. It's all sorts of stuff. Go there now, get the free Upside app, and use the promo code STU. You get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of 10 bucks or more. Five bucks or more cash back. Why not take it? It's free money on your first purchase of 10 bucks or more using the promo code STU with the Upside app. I'm happy to welcome James Lindsay to the program. He's the founder and president of New, New Discourses, and he's author of a new book, The Marxification of Education. Uh, Paulo Freire, I'm, I'm trying. Close I'm, I, I, I have no idea if I'm uh, Critical Marxism and the Lefts and the Theft of Education. It came out yesterday, so we're right on, the, right on top of this. This is great. Get a copy uh, as soon as you can. And you will read the book and not need to know how to pronounce his name. So that's, that's an important part of this. Yeah, uh, it only appears like a thousand times right. in the text. <laughs> you can make a... You can, Frary? Frary. Frary. That's well, what I was told. Okay. I'm just going with it. Yeah, let's just do it. <laughs> I mean, the British are unapologetic, right? They're like, let's go get tacos. Right. They're unapologetic <laughs> they about just saying things how they're going to say them. I think we should do the same. Why thing. do we care? You know, right. let's do it. The Copenhagen Copenhagen one really bothers me. Oh, like, no. It's Copenhagen. It's just going to be Copenhagen. We're going to get into pecans and pecans. We are. Yeah, that's, oh, that's no. coming soon. The book is, is out it's, uh, and, and it focuses on an important figure that I don't think most people know. I mean, I, I think you're really educating people. Who is this guy? Who is our friend, 
with the name we shall not pronounce. Yeah, I'll even hold it up. Look, there's, it, it exists. There it's it real. It's Here real. I am it's holding real my fist on the back. It's great. <laughs> uh, so who, who is Freire? So Paulo Freire was a Brazilian Marxist and post-colonialist educator. In the early 60s, he claimed to have devised, first you should mention, he, his family got deposed by the nationalist regime when it took over. They were put into extreme poverty from, up, from a middle class situation. So he had some, some chips on his shoulder against the regime. Sure. And so then he develops this way of like educating the peasants, where if you talk to them, instead of trying to teach them stupid words that nobody knows, like bird and nobody cares, like they don't want to talk about birds. They want to talk about what's happening in their lives. So you teach them to read the words that are things that are happening in their lives. So that's his idea. Mm. And allegedly he had some success with this. I don't know if this is true or not, but what he develops is this whole theory of education based on the idea that you're going to use words that mean something to the people. That's a real nice way to start with him. Sure. But then the regime got mad at him, kicked him out. There's a there's actually a revolution. They kicked him out. He fled to Bolivia. The Bolivians didn't want him either. They kicked him out. He went to Chile and studied straight up with actual Marxists for five or six years. He already had Marxist dispositions, post-colonial dispositions, thought that, that, that the education system that exists is colonizing the mind, and you want to throw that off. Decolonizing mm -hmm. the curriculum, this guy. Mm -hmm. And so um, he comes up with this whole Marxist theory of education where the idea is that people who get to decide what counts as knowledge, knowing, are like the bourgeois class that controls everything and they use that to oppress everybody else by making them learn things to get good jobs and the system that they benefit from. So he creates a Marxist theory of education, hence the title, Marxification of Education, and he comes up with this whole scheme using those political, those what he called generative words, the things that mean something to somebody. He changed it all over to where what you should teach people to read with or whatever else is words that mean something to them emotionally and politically. In other words, words they might radicalize them. Mm. So they recommend, you know, that you, kindergartner's first word, see dick run. No, no, no. Hunger, starvation, mm. dying, death, that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's dark. Man. It's real dark because the point is to, in his words, to use the academic lesson as a mediator to real knowledge, which is, in his words, political knowledge. When a Marxist says political knowledge, they mean believing things as, as a Marxist does. Yeah. It's interesting, because I want to get into how this spreads and, and moves across, but like, just you talking about that sounds so similar to what we're seeing with global warming today. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where like, this is just, it's, the kids are taught that this is, we were talking about this uh, earlier on radio today. You know, Greta Thunberg, you look at her and like, she's being praised by the media and everyone brings her around. This poor girl, you know, has her emotional problems and believes she's going to die from global warming. This is her reality. Yeah. She's constantly on the edge of death because of the weather. That's right. I mean, that's a terrible existence, and it sounds uh, an exact echo of what you're talking about here. It is, because that's how they teach the environmental stuff, is using this method. Mm. So they'll use, you know, petroleum might be a generative word, or pollution, or water, you know, and then they talk about clean water versus dirty water or trash. These might be the words, and this is how they teach that. And the goal is to create, out of your children, to create Greta Thunberg, people who have an existential belief that if we don't take the sustainability line of the United Nations, then the world's going to end in 10 years. I mean, I, and they're not going to have a future. They're going to have nothing to grow up in. It's to radicalize people using things that are made relevant or that they find from their lives that are relevant to their lives. His method is why they teach education that way. 
his method is why your kids are being turned into little Greta Thunbergs because that's what it's designed to do. It's amazing. So that's it's spread all the way here, but obviously this takes a long time. Freire comes up with this, starts to to implement it in in South America. Yeah. How how does it how does it get adopted? Why do people <laughs> believe it's successful enough or would want to do this? What's your favorite demonic organization in, <laughs> in Massachusetts that starts with an H? Harvard. Yeah. Oh, Harvard wow. actually he 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 got kicked out of uh, Brazil in 1964, right? So he writes his first book and publishes it in 1970. Harvard already invited him to give lectures on it in 1968. Harvard was Before way ahead of the out. curve on, wow. this guy. Yeah, on this guy. And then it turns out he was mostly ignored. He accepted. He lectured at Harvard for six months, but he also went to Geneva to take an appointment with the World Council of Churches, which is this big interfaith, Marxist interfaith movement. Right. There he probably liaised with other Brazilians like the Marxist from Recife, who he had met there before, Dom Helder Camara, who they called the Red Bishop because he was a communist. Mm. It turns out Klaus Schwab brought him to the World Economic Forum in 1973 to teach the world about poverty. Lots of weird little ties going on with these people. But they brought him back to the United States, uh, especially after the massive success of his 1985 book, which was called The Politics of Education. And that was successful because one of his acolytes, uh, American-Canadian guy, Henry Giroux, uh, a communist educator, went around from the late 70s when he discovered Paulo's work until 1985, getting Marxists tenured at colleges of education all over the country. He brags that he got over 100 tenured uh, by 1985, so this book comes out in 85, Giroux writes a foreword, goes out, Harvard Educational Review writes a glowing you of know, endorsement yeah. of it, and boom, they're off to the races. Every college of education starts adopting Paulo Freire and his method, and according to a, another Marxist educator who did a history of, of how education turned critical, or Marxist, his name's Isaac Gottesman from Iowa State, uh, he says that by 1992, Freire had arrived where he stands today, which is everywhere. So by 92, the colleges of education, which had been Marxified through the deliberate bringing people in to staff those, those colleges, transformed completely into Marxist training outfits. On the logic of if you catch the teaching colleges, you, te you catch the teachers. If you catch the teachers, you catch the students. And if you catch the students, you catch the future. Mm. And that's the strategy. That's the logic. They're doing it in seminaries with the exact same model now. Get the seminaries, get the pastors, get the laity, get the future. It's, it's scary because when, when we talk about this, we talk about the history and how this stuff was built up. It's hard to just not feel so far behind in this battle that it's impossible to win. I mean, like, I, I feel like most people are waking up to these things now. They're just realizing that these things are going on, but they have a multi-decade head start on this 50 years, stuff. yeah. Yeah, so I mean, how can we possibly compete? Well, it turns out that we have something on our side that, that is very dangerous to them, which is not rednecks, and it is not the Second <laughs> right, Amendment. Right, right, right. It is the truth. Yeah. The truth is the great leveler. The thing is, is that they don't have truth. They write these books that are book length, thousands of words or thousands of pages sometimes to try to twist around one lie, to try to get people to believe it. The, the 1619 truth, Project, Exactly. The truth cuts straight through this stuff. The mm. truth actually slices right through it. And so, you know, parents are waking up at, in an alarming, actually, an amazing rate. Mm -hmm. They're saying, you know, why are you doing drag queens in our schools? Well, it turns out they wrote a paper. Guess what word they use? They say the presence and the performance of the drag queen is generative for early childhood education, for queer ways of living and being. 
Mm. Generative. I wonder why that word <laughs> comes up. Right, right. And so right out of the book. That's why, though, is they, they want to use this idea to generate political conversations. But how do we win? It's simple. They've lied for 50 years. They sounded like the good guys for 50 years. We let them get away with it for 50 years. And now we know. And so now we begin the process, primarily going to be done at local and legal levels, of stopping them from doing it, pulling this back out of schools. We talk about, oh, no, the midterms, right? That's because conservatives, if I may, have their heads way up their butts about federal elections and aren't paying attention to local elections. There was a red tsunami in local elections. Mm. There was not a red tsunami in federal elections. But local elections, if you look at that... Some real good news there. Yeah. And so school boards across the country, Moms for Liberty bragging about hundreds and hundreds of, of school board appointments that their endorsed candidates got. School boards, county commissions, all of these people who do the things that actually need doing, all you have is a pipeline coming down from these big government entities like the federal government. And when somebody gets fed up enough and realizes this agenda is bad enough, all you got to do is screw that valve shut and all of a sudden they don't have any pull there. All that stuff happens at the local level. So taking it on locally and then bringing in legal battles, challenging this stuff in court, you're violating my First Amendment rights, you're violating my freedom of, of belief or whatever it happens to be, this will start to roll it back. And you say, well, what about the judges? Turns out they're waking up too. They're going from thinking, no, this is kind of a good way to think to what in the heck are they, why are there drag queens with kids? They're yeah. waking up too. Thank so the God way the we win is by waking people up, showing that it's poison and working locally to start pulling it out of systems and cutting off from the big corrupted entities until they either get reformed or become irrelevant. Hmm. Uh, let me go back to the drag queen thing here for one no, more. Yeah. Yeah, we talking about drag queens all day? Uh, all day, all day. Because uh, I, th I was thinking about this uh, over the past couple of weeks, and it, it, the, the beginning of this started with the, the terrible shooting, right? And this terrible shooting happens, and immediately the left is like, well, this is obviously, uh, you know, right-wingers. And, you know, the, then there's the whole non-binary thing that complicates that a little bit for their narrative. But take that out for a second. One of the things I was really offended by was the idea that, they were trying to blame this on people who were trying to stop the drag queen story hours. And they were saying, like, this is, look, at these right-wingers have been talking about drag queens this whole time. But I know of no right-wingers, no conservatives, who care if a bunch of adult people go to a drag show inside of a, a club. Right. It's all about the children. And that kind of went, like, farther down that line of, when did this start? Because drag queens... That's been a thing for a while. I mean, the RuPaul thing was like a kind of something that people like looked at and was like, oh, that's a wow, a crazy performance. And me, me, uh, that had been around for a long time. It, all of a sudden, it feels to, I think, a, the normal outlooker that the priorities of the drag queen community have totally changed to I want to read library books to kids at gatherings for breakfast. Like, wait, what? Yeah, right. I, I thought this was an adult thing that people indulged in occasion. No. That change seems to be exactly what you're describing here. Well, it turns out in that paper I was mentioning, which is called Drag Pedagogy, it's open access, so you can look it up, Drag Pedagogy. Uh, I don't know how I would Google that. Frankly. I encourage people to read it. <laughs> okay. I actually did a podcast where read I read it. the whole thing. Yeah, okay. Because they wow. tell you everything you need to know. And so they tell you when it started. It was in 2015 in San Francisco, of all places. Mm. What a big shock. Big surprise. They complain that people are saying that it is a sanitizing force on drag. Drag is an art form. You don't have to like drag or not, but like you said, there's no conservatives complaining about the fact of the art form or very few. Mm -hmm. You know, mostly gay men do this performance, mostly in burlesque nightclubs. It's sassy, it's subversive, it's often hilarious. Mm -hmm. And 
it's for adults, and that's where we knew it. It's, it's the dragging into the kids, and because we know, well, first of all, just because it's in front of kids, but also because we know that their intentions are nefarious. But that's why you got to read the paper, because mm. the paper tells you their intentions are nefarious. They say it's about inducing living queerly. They say it's about teaching kids alternate modes of kinship. They say that drag queen story, th- this is their words, is family-friendly in the sense of the family you find on the street, your queer family that you leave your mm. actual family for. And that's in the section mm. about inducing alternate modes of kinship. Abandon your family, that's real kinship, and come join our queer cult. That's what they're actually saying it's about. They say, well, you know, we talk about LGBT empathy. It's about empathy, right? Well, that's a marketing plan. We know that that's how we market it to get it into things, but it's really about teaching kids to live queerly. They say that in the paper. They explicitly, in their own words, say it. And then the last sentence of the paper, I love to bring it up over and over and over again because people should hear. This is how they, they were writing an academic paper for a major curriculum in a curriculum journal called Curriculum Inquiry. And the last sentence of the paper is talking about your kids. And I quote, and we're leaving a trail of glitter in the carpet that will never come out. That's grooming, folks. I don't know. People, I keep getting called out, you know, because I did the OK Groomer stuff. I got kicked off Twitter. I'm back on Twitter. (laughs) I did the OK Groomer thing. And people are like, I want you to account for yourself for this word. And I've had a BBC reporter. I've had a guy at a talk. I've had, like, challenge me. And I'm like, I'm just going to read to you a few paragraphs out of this paper. And I want to know what word you use. And I'll just do what the BBC guy did. He, The guy at the talk just started cussing at me afterwards. I win. But the BBC guy, I read this stuff. You know, we're leaving a trail of glitter on the carpet that will never come out. And he's like, (laughs) very British, right? (laughs) Well, yes. But don't you think it's dangerous? And I was like, no. I think grooming kids, leaving a trail of drag glitter in their hair or whatever is dangerous. Mm, fascinating. Do you have a couple, couple more minutes? Can yeah. you hang out for a few more? All right. Let, let, more with James Lindsay here in just a second. The new book is out today. We have it right here. It's a real world book. They still have books. You might be saying, hey, I read all my books on my Kindle. These still exist as well, and you should have them because you never know when it's going to get deleted off the Amazon store. Uh, the Marxification of Education, Paulo Freire, uh, Critical Marxism and the Theft of Education. Be sure to pick up a copy wherever you get your books. More with James Lindsay here in a second. All right, if you're having anything uh, sort of a life experience like me, you have to have a tendency to put things off until the very last second. And while most of the time kind of works out. The one thing in life that you really cannot afford to wait on is setting up term coverage, life insurance. You've probably seen the insurance you know, commercials and thought, yeah, you know, I'll look into that at some point. I'm, I'm young, I'm virile. Well, you know, look, this is not something that you can wait on. You never know what's going to happen around the corner. You need to be prepared and you can choose life insurance through Ladder today. Ladder is 100% digital, no doctors, no needles, no paperwork. They make it really easy. If you apply for $3 million in coverage or less, you just have to answer a few questions about your health in an application. You just need a few minutes uh, and a phone call or a laptop uh, and you can apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you find out if you're instantly approved. No hidden fees. You can cancel anytime. You can get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days. They make it as easy as possible. Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. They're rated A and A plus by AM Best. So go to ladderlife.com slash stew today to see if you're instantly approved. It's L-A-D-D-E-R Life.com slash stew. Ladderlife.com slash stew. We're back with more from James Lindsay, author of the new book, The Marxification of Education, Paulo Freire, Critical Marxism, and the, the Theft of Education. 
Uh, it's out. Uh, came out yesterday. Um, I'm sure it's going to be yet another bestseller. But it's something you need to know about and you need to understand. This is a, a different approach. And we've kind of been able to dig into it a little bit. It's fascinating stuff. I want to bring um, Rachel Levine into the conversation, if, if I could. Okay. Uh, Rachel uh, made uh, a series of comments that have been kind of... Uh, I don't know, exploding on the web and people really focusing on because I feel like we've just turned completely upside down. I want to give you some of these comments and and get your reaction. Listen. For almost 40 years now, I have considered an honor to be a doctor. I believe in our role as healers. I believe in our role as truth tellers. And the truth that we need to confront now is that medicine and science are being politically perverted around this country that destroys human lives. And we have reached a tipping point for the role in medicine and civic life, for the health and well-being of LGBTQI plus youth and other Americans. Those who attack our community are driven by an agenda of politics. It has nothing to do with medicine. It has nothing to do with science. It has nothing to do with warmth, empathy, compassion, or understanding. They are rejecting the value of supportive medicine, rejecting well-established science, and simply rejecting basic human compassion. We as doctors and as people who love our communities and love our nation have to confront the the fact that the language of care and compassion that they're using is being taken to granted to literally tear our communities apart. So we have to stand up. We have to take a stand on behalf of those who are being hurt. That's what we do in medicine, even when it's difficult. This is one of the most prominent medical professionals in America saying this stuff, saying stuff like we have truth on our side. Science is being perverted. And it's like, it's almost like come out of our mouths. No, no, no. It's a confession. I guarantee you his handlers her, what am, what am I supposed to do on <laughs> I TV? I don't know. Help. You, you do what mix, you do. Don't worry about it. Mix, mix Levine. Yeah. Handlers are <laughs> laughing. Perversion of science. We have to care about the health of LGBT youth who are being slaughtered by this trans nonsense, Mm. sterilized, converted. It's a confession, a coded confession, what we just listened to. The only thing, and there's even like little hints. Oh, they reject supportive medicine. There's no, that's made up. It's like alternative medicine. (laughs) So didn't technically lie. They made up a new thing that means you give us what we want and we call it medicine. We put the label medicine on. This is a confession. The only thing in there was we have truth on our side. Uh, and then whatever he said right after the supportive medicine, apparently I can't do the pronoun thing. Yeah. Uh, I pathologically can't do it. Uh, whatever it was right after the uh, the supportive medicine uh, about, uh, that, that was just a straight lie. There's yeah. only a couple of things in there that were actual distortions of the truth. The whole thing was a confession about what they're actually doing, which is destroying gay and lesbian children. Yeah, I mean, that's Destroying what the research shows, right? Psychologically, you know, 50-something percent or whatever, these kids are autistic. Mm. And they're leading them straight into what? Sterilization. It's like, come on. Uh, so I mean, really, what, the research has shown that a, a lot of people, first of all, think about going through these transitions, wind up thankful that they didn't. 
oftentimes. And a lot of times the people who did transition wound up or did not transition wound up being gay or lesbian. And so, you know, the, the, the G and the L in the acronym are like, hey, you're, you're taking the G's and L's and turning them into T's. We don't like this so much. Yeah, like, what are you doing? And all of a sudden they're invalidated and whatever else. And it's all, it's all correct. I mean, the thing is, is gender dysphoria or dysphoria, period, is real. There's only one form of dysphoria that we treat by affirming it. You don't have some little girl come into the doctor and say, I haven't eaten 61 pounds or whatever. It mm. looks like a skeleton. Haven't eaten because I'm going to be fat. And I look in the mirror, I have bags of fat hanging off my body. It looks like a skeleton. Anorexia nervosa. And the doctor's like, we have to affirm your <laughs> desire to be skinny. Right. You don't. It, nowhere else does a dysphoric issue get treated with affirmation and in fact including chemical and surgical affirmation which are irreversible changes uh no other one this is something completely different and uh they know what they're doing this isn't there's no evidence that supports that it actually you know curbs you know dysphoric suicides yes dysphoric kids who have problems are higher rate of suicide okay and when you control for that it turns out there's no benefit and possibly a net loss because what you're doing is actually taking them and saying hey look you know it's like casting your fishing line out into the line like here's a path follow this now you don't have breasts anymore now you have fewer options when it didn't work when they get to be four or five years down the road now your body's all screwed up because we pumped you full of hormones whoops we sterilized you because we put you on lupron you know off label there are lots of reasons why this is just utterly horrific, utterly catastrophic. And what you listen to, people should listen to Mix Levine there because <laughs> Admiral Mix, because <laughs> the matter of fact is that they're telling you what they're doing. And when you learn to hear the coded language, it's really weird because I can almost, I read this crap all the time. Right, right. So I've got to where I can hear it pretty much in real time. I was listening, I was like thinking I was going to have to say this and that, oh, it's inverted. But no, 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 no. They're confessing. We're destroying LGBT people through a perversion of science. And they're behind the scenes laughing. This is what we're doing to them. Ha, ha, ha. And they look all serious and whatever on TV. Uh, it sound all good. They're playing a double language game like they always play. Loaded language is a, well, it's a technique straight out of Mao. It's a technique mm-hmm. straight out of all of this kind of communist manipulation or Gnostic manipulation, whatever you want to call it. It does seem like, too, there's that there's an element of the, the old, the big lie, like the the... The left wing now likes to say January 6th is the big lie or hmm. uh, the election denial stuff was the, was the big lie. Of course, that a lot of that goes back to World War II and it was talking about Hitler and how he had the big like where he said the Jews were the problem. That was the foundation of so much of what went on there, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but like th- there's nothing to compare to that. But there is a there is a situation where they are trying to make the, the lie bigger and bigger and bigger. They literally will tell you the exact opposite of what they know the truth is and expect you to believe it and, and, and try to enforce it through all these mechanisms they've built through the media, through pressures, through uh, taking your livelihood away. And, you know, for the average person, I don't know, like maybe we're like a little spoiled on this. Like you, 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 this is you're writing books about this stuff. I'm, I'm blabbing about it every day. The average person is trying to go to work. They can't take this on. It's no. hard for them to do it. What do regular people do? They actually, I mean, I hate to say it. The regular person has to develop what Christians refer to as discernment. What they have to do is be able to kind of figure out when they're being lied to. They've mm. got to 
it takes time, it takes effort. But then again, if we were being asked to go storm the beaches in Normandy, we'd be figuring out how to use a gun. Yeah. We'd be figuring out how to, you know, jump out of an amphibious craft and cross a beach right. under machine gun fire. Right. You're, it, we're, we're in a, there's a war against our children right now, and the way that you defeat it is that you actually have to learn, which is why people like you blab on TV and people <laughs> like me write books. You have to learn how to see through their language and see how they're lying and realize you don't even have to know what it all means. You only have to know that you, there's a very strong reason not to trust it, that, they're, that they are, I guess, inverting language or turning it upside down to their own advantages because that lack of trust means that fewer and fewer people go along with it and then they communicate to their friends, you know what, that just got weird. And then people, more people step out of the circle of trust in which they're able to, to do the manipulations that they do. The left doesn't understand legitimacy. That's, I think, their fundamental mm. lack, their fundamental deficiency. They don't understand what makes a legitimate thing legitimate to the degree that it is. Any hierarchy has some legitimacy, some corruption. They all do. They don't know why it's legitimate ever at all. So they, what do they want to do? Destroy legitimacy and put themselves in charge of everything because they're going to make sure that no illegitimate things can come up from their tyranny. So they don't understand what makes something legitimate. So what that means is when they take over something like an admiral ship and a whatever the, the, the admiral does at the government, you got that weirdo stealing luggage looking like Matt Damon with a milk mustache <laughs> guy in a dress, like dog guy or whatever. They put these people in these positions and what they don't understand is that the legitimacy of the institution of the White House loses when they do that. Yeah. Because they don't know where legitimacy comes from. They think, oh, it's the White House. Legitimacy, period. Yeah, it has a lot built up. But you can take down a 200-year institution with one bad scandal. And they don't understand that. They can get in and abuse these things. So when people lose trust, those things don't have the influence that you said, oh, the White House said it. That'll become a thing. Yeah, they came out of the White House. So what? And then it'll be the, op the job of whoever fills the shoes after that collapse follows to restore that legitimacy. Of course... Not to put him on a pedestal, what we see that with, with Elon Musk, at least apparently, trying to restore legitimacy to Twitter by telling its deep and dark secrets. Right, right. And that's what he, I don't know if he's telling the truth for sure, I don't know Elon Musk, but that was his stated, we could take him at his, at least at his stated words, was that people can't trust Twitter until they know why people were banned, why the thing, the laptop got covered yeah. up. He's trying to restore that transparency. We see pathways back to, to legitimacy, but they, they don't have it. Well, it's going to be a long road. Um, I think it is important, as we're talking about, um, when you're talking about discernment, when you're talking about understanding why these things are happening, you need to understand the, the sort of foundations uh, that built these these ideas. And you need to understand how they came about and how they're being used today. The book is The Marxification of Education, Paulo Freire's uh, Critical Marxism and the Theft of Education by James Lindsay. It's out now. Make sure you get a copy of it. Read it. James, thanks so much for coming on and really explaining this stuff for us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You know, buying or selling a home is already one of the most stressful things you can do, and it can be 10 times worse if you're not working with the right agent. Generally speaking, our homes are our biggest investment, and it's a lot of responsibility. It can be really, really difficult to find the right agent. A lot of people just kind of think, hey, I saw an ad on a bus bench. I should hire that person to handle the largest transaction I'll ever have in my life. That doesn't sound like a great strategy. Realestateagentsitrust.com goes deeper than that. They go through the agents. They find the people with the best performance, the people that are going to work, that you can trust, that, you can, that will work best with you, that know the market. Everything you need to know 
to make that transaction go the right way. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go to find that person in your town, no matter where you live, whether you're buying or selling your home. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Check it out now. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Look, no one cares if Joe Biden goes to the border. We care about the problem at the border. You know, if Margot Robbie has a swimsuit shoot, no one's like, hey, Joe, why don't you go there? We don't go there because that's the perfect place. You don't need to go there. There's no problems to solve at the Margot Robbie swimsuit shoot. The problems are on the border, and Biden doesn't seem to want to go there because he knows the problems are terrible and he can't do anything to solve them. All right, get your Christmas shopping done. StuDoesMerch.com. The code is Stu20. Save 20%. And Friday, just a couple days away, the Power Hour. StuDoesPowerHour.com. You can watch it on YouTube. YouTube.com slash America.